Hello, I'm Nina Jeffs, and you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. I'm recording this in the midst of COP26, where I've been following gender and social inclusion, as well as Article 6 in the negotiations. I'm really excited to be bringing you an episode focused on the relationship between gender and climate change which is fitting because we're releasing this on Gender Day. The topic of gender and climate change has really come into focus at COP26 because of last week's release of the Glasgow Women's Leadership Statement. And this podcast episode will really tackle this issue in two parts. Firstly, I'm talking with two youth activists on gender and climate change, Renata Koch-Alvarenga from Brazil and Zainab Yunusa from Nigeria, who draw on examples from their local context to explain why and how gender and climate change are related. In the second half of this podcast, I'm very fortunate to speak with Gotteland Albert from Germany, who is the co-founder of Gender CC. She shares a little bit about the history of gender in the international climate change negotiations from her decades of experience. This episode is packed full of great insights from an intergenerational, diverse group of women. So let's get started. So first up, the relationship between gender and other social factors and climate change may not be immediately obvious, so I feel very fortunate to be joined by two youth advocates on this issue to really get into the nitty-gritty with me. So I'm going to be in conversation with Renata Koch-Alvarenga, a young gender and climate justice advocate from Brazil. She's the founder and director of Embodera Clima, an educational initiative about gender equality and climate action focused on youth in the global south. And I'm also in conversation with Zainab Yunusa, a youth advocate from Nigeria whose work focuses on gender equality, sexual and reproductive health and rights, and climate change, and especially the interconnections between these issues. First, I ask Hinata and Zainab to explain the impacts of climate change on women and girls, and why they sometimes differ to the impacts of climate change on people of other genders. Of course, we can't talk about gender without also talking about other forms of social inequalities, like race, age, sexuality and class, which interact and affect people's experience of climate change, as well as their inclusion in decision-making on these issues. Hinata and Zainab share some really interesting perspectives on this from their different contexts. When we're talking about women and gender or gender and climate, people have a hard time relating those two, but to be honest, the reality is they're so simple to interconnect. The idea is that climate change affects some people more than others, right? So when we're talking about the climate crisis, we have to talk about social inequalities. So of course, one of them is the patriarchal society that we live in, and that affects women more. So if we're thinking about the global south, about developing countries, we have to think that a lot of times when there's climate disasters, women have less tools, less capabilities to be able to get out of that situation in comparison to men, for example, in the household. So one quick example that we see a lot in Brazil is related to droughts. So in the north of Brazil, there's a lot of droughts and we can see that when that happens, the men will go to work, will do their job and the women will stay home to get the water for their families. And that means they'll have to walk miles and miles with these really heavy buckets of water to go and find you know, that resource to bring home. So when they're doing that, they're more accessible to having sexual assault, to having just gender violence because they're walking to these very dangerous places. Or if they're younger, they're 
just maybe missing out on school. So they're not getting their education because they have these societal roles in the patriarchal system that we live in. So that's just one quick example, but I think the general idea on gender and climate is really considering that these women, or women in general, but especially women who are in the global south or indigenous women or black women who are in in a lot of times in those more vulnerable contexts, we need to consider how they're going to be affected by all of the effects of climate change. So drought is one example, but we can think about floods and other many, many other climate disasters and just really take that into account. And the idea of gender and climate is not just to take the victimized side of it or the vulnerability side of it, but really shift that narrative into the leadership part of it. Uh, for me, it's I'm a woman, I'm a young girl. And how I differentiate the impact of climate change is when I look at my experience and I see the experiences of those around me. So for women and girls, it's quite peculiar because we all know that climate change is a threat multiplier. So climate change may not directly be the causes of this threat, but it exacerbates it. It worsens the situation for women and girls. Women and girls are mostly already facing higher risk of gender-based violence, of early and forced marriages, of getting their source of livelihood being taken away from them, and even sexual and reproductive health rights and care needs not being met. So when you now have issues of climate change coming into this, it sort of, it sort of worsens the already existing situation for them. And, and if I want to even speak from the context of Nigeria, for instance, where I am from, so we already have issues of internally displaced persons, people that are Nigerians but are being displaced in their own country, around, especially around the northeast of Nigeria, in the area of the Lake Chad region, where there is scarcity of resources. We know that this has induced insecurity. And you have people moving away from these places, going to these camps, where that's where they stay, and most of the women in these camps, we have heard reports, the reports that most of the time they do not have access to products of, to meet their family uh, family planning needs, meet their sexual reproductive health. And even the, the, the risk of being exposed to gender-based violence, either by the officials of the camp or even people that they're staying there with, it has worsened, it's, it's higher rate. And then you have a situation where families are now selling off, trading off their female children because it's additional burden to them and they feel you know what when you're no longer when there's no longer an extra mouth to feed it makes life easier for us so these are some of the peculiar challenges that girls and women face that are climate induced next i asked henata and zainab but women aren't just victims of climate change they also have important skills and knowledge to bring to climate action right yeah, of course. I mean, I think there's no better time to talk about this than at COP, because if we, again, want to achieve an ambitious agreement or want to deliver the outcomes of the Paris Agreement in the best way possible, we need, as I always say, the other half of the population present at the climate policy spaces. So the idea is that we have those people who are more affected. So, of course, women and girls, but we have to talk about people with disabilities, the elderly, children, indigenous peoples who are really on the front lines a lot of the times. And of course, when we're talking about gender, we have to consider trans women as well and just the queer community as a whole. So we talk a lot about queer ecofeminism, not too much at COP, I must say. So I really do think that when it comes to 
queer ecofeminism, racism and, and racial equality and those kinds of issues. We have a long way to go, unfortunately. But the idea is that we have those people at the table giving their input, talking about their lived experiences at the decision-making spaces. Uh, thank you for bringing it up because it's, it's always something that, because what you hear every time is, oh, women are victims. It, it, it's the truth, but sometimes it can be tiring because in as much as we say we are the victims, I think we should also fight for wanting to play a role in, in being part of the solution, which is one of the where COP is an avenue to push for such demands too. In the, in the ongoing COP, Nina, it may shock you to know that it's only about one third of the attendees that are actually women here. And, you know, we have all these big decisions, big climate pledges, big commitments being made by world leaders. But if you take a look at the world leaders, there are only few of them that are women. Most of them are actually men. So these are some of the ways that women are not given this basis. And I know that the knowledge and skills that young girls, women bring, I think it's it's been underutilized because they do not have that opportunity. And then funding is another aspect of it that I think, I, I mean, I don't want to entirely go into at this moment. And so, you know, building off this, why do you think that women's participation in climate change related decision making is important? Yeah, it's so important because, I mean, just from a, a youth perspective, because I've worked as a youth activist for six or seven years now, it's just, you know, about our future, right, that we're talking about here. And when we look at the delegations of, for example, my country, of Brazil, or just any country, honestly, most of them are dominated by these old white men, old white diplomats that are leading those talks. And that's okay in a way, but we also need the diversity so that we can have richer discussions that include the different perspectives. And oftentimes we see those groups more and more at COP. I mean, this year we have the largest Brazilian indigenous delegation that we've ever had at COP26, which is really exciting. But they're acting as observers, civil society members, and not as negotiators. So shifting that narrative and going to the leadership part of the conference, the negotiation, will really bring more ambitious outcomes and outcomes that consider what civil society or what society as a whole looks like in Brazil or in any country more than what we're seeing here in terms of representation. Yeah, thank you. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm wondering... If you could, moving from the sort of high-level international negotiations to the contributions of civil society members at those high levels are sort of based on their own knowledge and skills and experience from their own local contexts, right? Because everybody comes from a different local context and is kind of feeding that into the international decision-making. But could you maybe talk a little bit about the sort of frontline work that people in your context are doing and and what their participation in decision-making brings? I mean, whether that's your youth advocacy work or whether it's more broad kind of gender and climate change work in Brazil, but I'd be interested to hear that, that perspective as well. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really important because it's easy to get lost a little bit in those climate negotiations and forget what's actually happening on the ground. And that's why gender and climate is so important. If you consider indigenous peoples in Brazil, a lot of the leadership comes from young indigenous women, uh, which is who we work with a lot at Empodera Clima, at the initiative that I lead on gender and climate. So we really try and bring those voices, those people that are working on you know, small communities in the Amazon rainforest or in the north of Brazil on the ground and bring that to these high-level and privileged spaces. One example I could give is we've done a lot of work on the Gender Action Plan, which is this main framework that we have, the UNFCCC on gender, and try to bring that back to our realities, our context, our communities. And Empodera Clima works a lot with 
uh, the Climate Observatory in Brazil, Observatório do Clima, which is this large group of different civil society organizations. And there's a working group on gender and climate. And we've talked a lot about tropicalizing the gender action plan. So we have a bunch of frontline communities of traditional communities, indigenous communities, who are part of those groups. And they talk about their experiences, what they're doing on the ground. And we try to kind of bridge that gap between the gender action plan and then what they're doing and translate that. Because I think translation-wise, that's one, one thing we could talk about. That's one thing we do at Impodera Clima, translating the content, the gender and climate conversations to Portuguese. But not just that, translating that in terms of language and in terms of making just making it more accessible. So we talk about tropicalizing the Paris Agreement, tropicalizing the gender action plan. I think that's how we've tried to bridge that gap. But of course, there's still a long way to go. So what are some of the challenges that women working on climate action in your country face? And what opportunities do you see for gender equitable climate action as well? I think in terms of challenges, one thing that I've focused a lot on is education. And you can see that not just in Brazil, but everywhere in the world. When we're thinking about like elementary school education or just young girls, and we're not seeing them get the climate education that they need. I, for example, didn't have that in middle school or high school or even college. So I had to learn about, you know, the climate policy negotiations totally by myself. And I think there's such a specific and direct link between girls' education and climate action, because when we give that capacity building and allow them to have the tools and the skills to become climate leaders when they grow up, we can see that change that we were talking about in the negotiations at a COP space. So that's one example. But there's so many more. I think access to finance is really difficult. So again, bringing it back to the gender action plan, we need to know how women who are in the front lines can access the funding from the Gender Climate Fund, for example. It's not really clear, the process of how to do that. So those are some of the, of the challenges. But I think education and finance are the forefront of what we see in Brazil. But in terms of opportunities, there's so many. I mean, as I said, having more participation on the ground here is so important. But in terms of participation, I think I study public policy at the moment, and I think being part of the public policy space is so, so important. So, you know, uh, having more support for women that are running for office, electing and voting on more women is so important. We have only one indigenous woman who is a congresswoman in Brazil out of the 500 representatives. So that really goes to show, you know, where a lot of the political priorities lie in many Latin American countries. So when we're able to bridge that gap at the national level, we are going to see that change at the international level. So I would really highlight focusing on policy, but also trying to come to these negotiations, even though they are super high level and super far off from what we do on the ground, I think really makes a difference. And, you know, making sure our voices are heard in these spaces is just crucial to the outcome. So hopefully we can see that more in the future and just have more representation when it comes to race, gender, age, and many other intersectionalities. When you have the issue of agriculture, it's also, I mean, the weather is changing, the climate is changing, there's need to take up new um, agricultural uh, modes and technology and patterns. And these require knowledge and technology. And every of this can only be done with finance. So we have our governments making commitments to climate adaptation, financing. In fact, we have beautiful innovations like the Green Climate Fund being there. But access to those funding is another key issue. For instance, I was able to participate in a training for Green Climate Fund. We're actually being trained in the process of creating a 
good proposal that could be um, sent to the board for approval and then to get money to implement some projects. But it was a three-day training. And, and what I realized that even with my vast knowledge in code of climate change and project management, it, was, it is a tedious process. And it focuses on really large, very big scale projects to say maybe um, to, for, for climate action. And what came to my mind is that we have these women at the grassroots level, at the front line, facing this direct impact of climate change, whether on their agriculture uh, produce or in their farmlands. And we have this fund there. And, and the government will say, OK, you know what, we have provided this fund. But these women, how do these women go about creating such proposal, writing it down? Some of them do not even have information to that. And if they have information, they can't even access it because they don't have the training and the skill set. It's such a tedious process that you'd rather just say, I want to sit in my house and be able to manage whatever it is that go through all of that lengthy process and in the end may not even be able to access those funds. So some of that are, are the issues that I see. And I'm like, are we really centering and focusing the needs of these people that are affected? Or are we just coming here to speak a lot of big, bogus English and grammar and then go back to our various destinations? Yeah, I see opportunities in two ways. First, the government, the response of the government in the Ministry of um, environment in Nigeria. It's been encouraging so far. We have a government that is that is listening and willing to include citizens, especially young people. For instance, recently when the NDC was being enhanced, we had a consultation with the Minister of Environment for States, Madam Sharon was actually there. She participated in the virtual event and she created an opportunity for young people to make imputes, which was factored in the process of enhancing the NDC that was submitted in July 2021. So that has been quite encouraging. And not only that, there was also the launching of youth working groups on different thematic areas as it affects climate change, which is going to be like a direct engagement mechanism between young people and the ministry. So those are opportunities, but we need, we definitely need more of that. Thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thank you, Nina. Thank you. It's so important to talk about it and I hope we get to talk more and more about gender and climate because that's the only way we're going to combat this climate crisis. Having highlighted some of the key issues around gender equality and climate change, our next interview focuses on how solutions in international climate policy so far have progressed. We also talk about some of the key challenges and opportunities for making climate policy equitable going forward. To discuss these topics, I'm joined by Gotteland Albert, the co-founder of Gender CC, which is a global network of organisations working on gender equality, women's rights and climate justice. Gotteland was the focal point for the Women and Gender Constituency at the UNFCCC for six years. Could you tell me a little bit about how gender has been integrated into some of the UNFCCC decisions over time uh, since you started working on this issue? Uh, so in the beginning, there have been more like some, some more formal decisions. On So the first decision ever that looked at gender was, I think, in 2001 or so. And this was about gender parity, so gender balance in the process, but did not address the gender responsiveness of climate policy. And it took quite a while until gender as an item really came into the policy. So in, uh, so the first steps were made with, with adaptation because more and more people realized 
the response to vulnerability, which means adaptation, needs to take into account gender aspects. And so more and more decisions we're taking that at least have some, some language, like usually the language in this process, taking into account gender equality, taking into account the most vulnerable groups like women and indigenous peoples and so forth. So, so this is the kind of language. So the years before 2010, before the Cancun Agreement, so more and more, uh, let's say, individual decisions on gender were taken. And then in 2012, the so-called gender decision uh, was taken. So that was a COP decision, so not one of the, let's say, tiny, smaller decisions. And, and that was about looking at gender balance again, but also looking at gender-sensitive or gender-responsive policies. And this decision introduced gender as a standing item on the agenda of each COP. So at each COP, gender needs to be in some way taken into consideration. And a work process that started with in-sessional workshops on different aspects of gender. Thank you. And for some listeners that might not be familiar with what gender responsive climate change policy is, mm-hmm. could you maybe just explain that briefly? It's a, a policy that does not only take into account the achievements in terms of climate change, but also the impacts on gender relations. So whether it has has negative impacts on gender relations. So there is a lot of policies around that definitely have negative impacts on equality. And the goal is, of course, to have both, to have the effects we want in terms of climate change, and to contribute to gender equality. That's great. That's a really helpful explanation. So sort of skipping ahead a little bit in time, we now have the Gender Action Plan. And what are parties expected to do under the Gender Action Plan? So for the moment, it's primarily capacity building and training and and doing more in terms of achieving gender parity. So I would say it's still a little bit limited uh, because because for me and, and for my organization, the goal is a, a full integration of, of gender consideration into policies. And that would require, for instance, uh, using tools like gender impact assessment, gender analysis, gender budgeting, and so forth. And for the moment, we don't have any binding requirements as for gender analysis. So we, we have... For instance, a follow-up from the side of the UNFC Secretariat on gender balance. And they also do some work on gender tools. But I think that needs to go further. And and in particular, uh, what I think is needed, that we recognize that gender must be part of all aspects of climate change. It's not only limited to vulnerability and adaptation but also mitigation policies, they have a gender dimension. And as I said, they they can have negative impacts on gender equality. What you've said about areas where you think the UNFCCC process on gender could go further kind of leads me to my next question, which is, what would you say are some of the key issues remaining for gender-responsive climate policy? You've said it's not just about women and girls' vulnerability to climate change, but it's also about their capacity as actors to sort of drive positive change. So I'd be interested to hear what you think some of the issues are around, for example, finance for yes, women-led initiatives. Definitely, yeah. yeah, finance is a big issue. 
So the Green Climate Fund, so the, the major finance instrument, and also uh, the, the Adaptation Fund there, they should be gender-sensitive or gender-responsive, but the question is, do, do they meet these right. requirements okay. in yeah. practice? And also, how much money goes into, into what kind of fields like mitigation, adaptation, and for instance, a big issue is loss and damage. So we think there, there must more money needs to go into loss and damage. So if people really lose their homes, their resources, and I think there is also a gender dimension in that. So many, many women in the Global South, they have informal jobs, they don't have formal land rights. And so a gender-responsive system for loss and damage needs to take this into account that not only people with the formal rights get some kind of compensation for their losses, but also the women who have only this, this informal uh, relation. So that, that is one issue. And then, as I said, so uh, that the gender aspects of mitigation are not, not really fully acknowledged in this process. And I think we have to much more look into that. So for instance, how do transport policies affect women and men or other genders and, and what could be from a gender perspective the priorities we need. And so uh, we, we, for instance, work with cities, with, with women's organizations who in turn work with cities because we think that urban policy is, is very important in, in practice. So it's not only about big power stations, it's about how do the structures where we live, also the, the spatial structures, how do they look like how are transport systems designed? So is it only uh, relying on, on private transport, which most women cannot afford? Or is there a, a safe, affordable, accessible public transport system? These are key issues for women. I suppose looking beyond COP26 then, what sort of progress would you like to see in the UNFCCC negotiations going forward on some of these issues that you've identified? I think ambition, of course, is the big thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so if, if, if climate policy is not sufficiently ambitious, it can be gender responsive, but that won't help us. So, so we need first ambition. And of course, then it must be gender responsive. And uh, we all know that, that there is too little ambition, in particular with the, with the major emitters. So I think that is, of course, the key issue. Another key issue is finance, so promises have not been kept in terms of finances. So it's about the sources of finance. Governments from rich countries must provide more finance, so they, they cannot say it's, it's a private sector that will, will provide that, so it must be governments. A lot of public, more public money must, must go into that. And the other thing is where, where does the money go to? Does it reach the people who really need it and, and who, who would also be the beneficiary of a gender-responsive climate policy. Thank you. One final question from me, really. What sort of opportunities do you see in terms of gender-equal responses to climate change? You know, what makes you feel positively about the direction of travel, if you like, with gender and climate change action? I'm, I must say, in general, I'm, I'm pretty sceptical because I have been uh, in this process for so long and it was so slow, so slow, and, and improvements are only incremental. But what, what really gives me hope is, is the young people who come in. 
in particular young women. So when I look, for instance, in my country, in Germany, the achievements of Fridays for Future and the key people in the Fridays for Future movement are young women. And their achievement is enormous because this really raised awareness of a majority of the population on climate change. So, so things that we have been trying to do for like 30 years or so, I, I, I have been working on climate change, but now it's there and now everybody is clear we have to, to work on this. Right. It's great to end on a note of the leadership of young women and yes. raising awareness yeah. of climate change and sort of the equity and justice aspects of it. Yes, as well. yes, because they combine the technical things that have to be done with the social issues. That's great. Thank you so much for joining mm. me. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It's been a deep dive into how gender and other social factors affect climate change impacts, but also how women and girls have plenty to contribute to equitable climate action. We'll be back later this week with more COP-related content, and also after the conference, reflecting on outcomes of the negotiations. In the meantime, you can follow all of the work Chatham House does on the environment and climate change on our website, www.chathamhouse.org, or by following us on Twitter at ch underscore environment. So until next time, thank you again for joining us.